the New York City Chris. In three, in two, in one. All right, everybody, welcome to episode number 103 of the Between the Cracks podcast. I am your host, Bill, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Chris. Chris, here we are at the end of 2022. You know what that means, because around here at BTC, we like to tell an inspiring tale to finish out the year on a positive note. And boy, oh boy, do we have one for you tonight. Tonight, we are discussing the incredible survival story of 29-year-old Harrison O'Kenney, a young man who was the sole survivor of a shipwreck in the Gulf of Guinea off the coast of Nigeria in 2013. Now, as if that wasn't enough, Harrison managed to survive for nearly three days by miraculously finding an air pocket in one of the rooms of the ship as it laid at the bottom of the sea floor at a depth of 100 feet. All this taking place in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, 20 miles offshore. How could this be possible, Chris? Well, we're going to find out. Because, like we always say around here, and this is very fitting because it's our last show of the year, we need to go backwards in order to go forward. Chris, maybe you can enlighten us. Who was Harrison O'Kenney, and how did he find himself in such a predicament? Harrison O'Kenney was a cook aboard a ship called the Jaskin Four. The Jaskin Four was a tugboat, one of several tugboats that were located, as you had mentioned, in the Gulf of Guinea. And the reason for the tugboats being there was that this was a popular area for offshore oil drilling. The job of the tugboats were to help stabilize the oil tanker, one in particular that I believe was owned by Chevron. This area involves some volatile seas at times, and so on the morning of May 26, 2013, as Harrison had awoken from his sleep just before 5 a.m. to use the restroom, he was getting ready to start his day to begin cooking the first meal for the crew. And something happened that nobody could have possibly expected, but a rogue wave crashes into the Jaskin 4, sending it completely upside down and capsizing rapidly sinking to the ocean floor, roughly 100 feet below the surface. So at this point, all hell's breaking loose. Harrison begins to open the bathroom door, and he feels all this pressure up against the door. The tugboat is already filling with water. He was able to somehow jar that door open, and it's at that point that he sees two of his fellow crew members get sucked up out of a door and into the ocean itself. We should note, Chris, that in the Gulf of Guinea, even to this day, piracy is a huge concern for any vessels that are out at sea, especially if you're that far offshore. So the crew is instructed to lock their doors at night just due to the fact that at any moment, a Nigerian pirate could actually jump aboard your vessel and then take control of the ship and whatnot. And keep that in mind, because as this was all taking place, their doors were locked. So... They had to struggle to not only get themselves out of the room, but to find the key to get out, unlock the door. And remember, this is happening at 
five o'clock in the morning. So these guys are just waking up. So they're probably completely disoriented, not knowing where the hell they are, what's going on. And, you know, Harrison is in this bathroom. So he was pushed from the bathroom that he was in to another section of the boat, which was the officer's quarters. And it was a small four by four room. But it was in that room that he was actually able to find a small air pocket. Because now, remember, we said that this ship landed upside down. The floor is now your ceiling. The ceiling is now your floor. I can't even imagine what these guys are going through. They're just the, the complete panic and shock that they must all be feeling. But luckily enough for Harrison, where some of the guys were thrown from the vessel itself, he was pushed into another room. And in that room, he did find a small air pocket in which he was able to, at least for the moment, be able to continue to breathe. The remarkable thing here, too, to remember is that he basically had no control Outside of him pushing his way out of the bathroom, he had no control where he was ending up. He ends up getting pushed into these quarters, basically gets funneled into this other bathroom that's adjacent to the quarters. You're now talking about a vessel, as you mentioned, is completely upside down. It has now reached the floor of the ocean at about 100 feet down, and it did so rapidly that there was literally no time for anybody to do anything. Now you have to deal with the fact that the ship's upside down, at the bottom of the ocean, and it is now pitch black. Who knows if he knows that he's at the bottom of the ocean, but what difference does that make? You're in a ship that clearly has turned upside down, and it's black. You can't see anything. You, you're in an air pocket, which it, it sounds like a blessing, but at the same time, is it just prolonging the inevitable? Well, that's what we come to find out, because uh, as we learn later on, even with these air pockets, you're still, little by little, you're running out of oxygen and you're starting to consume more and more carbon dioxide with each and every breath that you take. So with the amount of pressure that must be on the outside of this tugboat pushing down, I mean, even though Harrison is alive, he's got to be feeling, like you said, like he's on borrowed time. As he's down there and he's in this air pocket, he can kind of hear things that are going on. He can hear some of his crewmates. And we should mention that this vessel, the Jaskin 4, actually had a crew of 12, including Harrison. So there were 11 other crew members aside from Harrison on board. He begins hearing his fellow crew members talking and screaming. And then little by little, he begins to notice that as time went on, the voices became less and less. So at this point... I'm guessing he's thinking they either escaped or, unfortunately, they are beginning to perish one by one. I mean, you, you, can, you can hope, obviously, because you would assume that your ship being capsized and sunk, although, mind you, this was at the wee hours of the morning, that the vessels around notice that a rescue mission is underway, so your hopes might be a little bit higher, I, I guess, in the sense that maybe they're trying to get to you as quick as possible. But what Harrison may not know is that he is so deep in the ocean that the rescue crews that are closest are unable to go to his depth for extended periods of time. They're able to reach down to the ship, but they're not able to go inside of it. So, so that really does nothing for Harrison because while they could be going down there and around the ship looking for anyone that might be alive or could be resuscitated. He's stuck inside the ship, which, by the way, is pretty much locked and sealed shut. So they dove down, they located the Jaskin, and they threw up a buoy, basically to mark where exactly it sunk. But 
they called the search off once they did the initial dive down because at the time they were basically saying, you know, the ship's capsized, it's upside down, it hit the floor, we can't get inside. So we're we're basically, you know, that that's it. You know, we're, we're calling off the search. You would have to assume at this point that all the crew members are dead. Yeah, and that would be, the I, I guess, the assumption. But even if, even if there was a, sh- a shred of hope that someone could be inside, there was nothing this crew could do about it. We should mention that Harrison later on tells us that he heard them and he was trying to bang against the, it would be the bottom of the ship, even though that would be the top that the divers are looking at. Because remember, everything's upside down. He's banging against it, hoping against hope that they hear him, but they don't. And I don't know if it was on anyone else's mind that there's potential for a survivor to be trapped inside of an air bubble because it's not unheard of for there to be air pockets in sunken ships. But what they were working with with the rescue crew was not able to go inside the ship. So it didn't matter. But they do not hear Harrison's knocks. And while Harrison's down there, he's hearing things hitting the sides of the ship. He's hearing a lot, you know, different subtle sounds. He starts hearing what sounds like like fish or um, Just thrashing. Say Just say it. <laughs> he says he heard what sounded like fish that were feasting on something. So he's hearing sharks. Potentially hearing sharks or large fish. Inside certain rooms of the tugboat now. Right. And, oh and, my uh, God. Dude, this is just, this is, this is, this is beyond my worst nightmare. Yeah. And he, he, he recalls smelling what smelled like, like a very foul stench of, you know, almost like maybe like a decomposing corpse. Now, mind you, the water's at the surface are probably in the low 80s, which, you know, all right, that's fine. That sounds like you'd, you'd be able to survive, but he's 100 feet deep. There's a big difference in temperature from the surface to the to 100 feet deep. So he has to keep the upper half of his body at the very least above water. He is going to be dealing not only with the potential of having some worst case scenario, freaking sharks coming into his quarters, but he's dealing with hypothermia, potentially. And let's not forget about staying hydrated. He has no water. Even though he's submerged in water, he has no drinking water available. Yeah, you can't drink salt water. I think he said above all, I mean, he was hungry, but he said above all, he was just really, really thirsty. And he is able to somehow use, I think, parts of the wall siding or something to fashion something to keep him a little bit afloat. So that his upper half of his body, at least, is not in the water, which helps to keep his body temperature up. But little by little, you're having your air becoming toxic as it builds up more and more with CO2. You have to remember that what that pressure does to the body when it's being kept at that depth for that long period of time. I'm sure people are familiar with what the bends is when you, you know, surface too quickly after being a certain depth. But his body is now being experiencing the pressure of 100 feet deep. Basically, time is not on his side. So with each hour that goes by, his chances of survival are decreasing rapidly. And we should note that... As he dove through the waters, he was actually lucky enough to find a different air pocket. And this one, I believe they said, gave him roughly four feet of space. So he did have some room. So at least, if nothing else, at this point in time, he's in a room that he has a little bit of headroom. He can keep a majority of his upper body out of the water, which also ends up keeping him alive. 
I mean, that's about all he has going for him at this point. Can you imagine while going from one room to the other where he finds his other air pocket, if you just, like, feel something bump against your leg like a, no. like a fish or something? Dude, I can't. Like, I, I swear to God, like, this encompasses every one of my worst nightmares. I, I hate the water. I cannot stand being out on the ocean. I mean, it's just terrifying to me. And then you, you couple that with hearing thrashing sounds and being in complete darkness. I mean, my first instinct is that the, the, the sharks are going to get me. Maybe all for the best, just to put, I'd put you out of your misery. No, seriously, dude, because when, you know, he's floating on, on this, this this makeshift little raft he has there, but his legs are still dangling in the water. The thing that's saving him, possibly, is that these large sharks or larger fish, maybe they're just deterred by these doorways and these narrow halls of this tugboat. So they're just like, you know what? We'll just avoid this area. But he knows that something else is in there with him because he hears it. And that's mentioned, too. I don't know about the west coast of Africa, but South Africa is a notorious area for, like, great white sharks. Even if you get out of the ship, which, by the way, because he's 100 feet deep, even if he has the nerve to, which I wouldn't in a million years have the nerve to try to swim in pitch black, and then, God forbid, you don't find a room that has an air pocket, you can't get back to the room that does, and you just drown in the fucking ship, I would, that, that just puts chills down my spine just thinking about it. Well, think about it because your first instinct, at least for me, I'm like, I got to get the hell out of here. Once I break loose of this boat, I'll be able to get myself to the top. Not thinking or not knowing how far down you are to realize that if you did indeed escape, that would be a death sentence. I would rather take my chances. I mean, and Harrison doesn't know that that's that people might be coming for him, but I would rather take my chances. I would just... If I was him, I would just constantly be rattling at the freaking anything metal to make the most noise I could every once in a while and just hope someone's finding me. Otherwise, I would just drop dead right there because I'm not taking my chance of making my way out of the ship. And then even if I do, I have a hundred foot ascent to get up. And at as we were saying, at the depth that he was for the time that he was, if he were to escape that ship and frantically swim to the surface, which would take probably close to two minutes if you were to safely surface from that depth without having some real crazy health issues from getting the bends from being at that depth for that long. No way I'm taking those kinds of chances. It, it's just, that's it. And then that's kind of basically what Harrison did. He basically said, and I think this is just what a person's mind does eventually, right? You just have to come to terms with the fact that you are going to die. It is going to happen, and this is where it's going to happen. What he does say, and we're going to hear in an interview right now, that Harrison tells us that even though he was losing hope, it was his faith in God and the thoughts of his family that kept him alive. So let's play a little bit of what Harrison has to say. All right. Lights went off and the vessel capsided. And I was there trying to, like, and the WC fell on my head until my head. And I was there struggling on how I can be able to open the door. When I was right in the water, when I have access to nothing, right down inside the water, I thought of my family, thought of my, my mom, my brothers, my wife. I have access to none of them, no way to get to them. And I was right in the water, and I know I'm going to die. But the only thing I could put my hope and trust in and my confidence in is God. I don't know he's up for three days because I was thinking he just said, maybe it's getting to the evening. I was on the keep on praying, 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 praying. When I prayed for some time, I stopped. 
And I said, God, let that will be done as it is in heaven. Because I have tried my best. And I have called on you and you have never feed me before. And you will never feed me at all in my life. So as I say that, to me, if death comes, let it come. If death did not come, I know it's going to rescue me. So as I was there like that, I kept calm. And I was bold because I was not afraid anymore because I know it's life and death. The, the, road, the, the, the line is already drawn. If you want to come, let it come. What's your name? So there you have it, right out of the mouth of Harrison. He's talking about how he did not completely give up hope, but as he said, the line was drawn. He's either going to be saved or he isn't, and he was ready to accept the fact that this may very well be it. And as we come to find out, all hope was not lost, was it? New Year's boy. All hope was not lost. Bill, because this is when a vessel by the name of the Lewick Toucan arrives with a deep sea diving crew. Except this deep sea diving crew is not on a rescue mission. They are on a salvage mission. And this crew is ultimately hired by West African Ventures, who is the parent company of the Jaskin 4 tugboat. And they basically just want the bodies of the crew members recovered. So this is completely a salvage mission. This is not meant to be a rescue mission. So a six diver crew begins the descent and they begin assessing the situation. Uh, and the crew was basically trying to find, initially find entry points before they begin their salvage of trying to basically find bodies that were trapped inside the ship. So this diving crew goes down, they have cameras basically attached to the divers so that a team up top that is on the ship can see what they're seeing and they're they're basically walking them through the layout of the ship because this boat the Jaskin 4 that is upside down is at the floor which has kicked up a ton of silt and it's extremely cloudy down there. So they're basically, in essence, kind of diving blind. There's no way they can make out enough to see where they're going without some support. Um, so basically someone up top has essentially a blueprint and telling them, all right, you're going to go this way. This is where one of the quarters is. They're basically just looking for bodies right now. And there's actual video footage of this, which I will post a link in the show notes, but you can find it anywhere. It's all over YouTube. Just looking at this, you might as well be walking on another planet. You see debris floating all over the place. I mean, these guys can barely see what's directly in front of their face. I mean, they have small headlamps, but it's not throwing enough light. So like you're saying, we actually hear on video the diver supervisor, Kobe Werrett. We hear him giving instructions like you were talking about. It is coordinated in such a meticulous nature that it's unbelievable, man. You can't even believe what you're watching. You know, how he can dictate to his divers and how they can maneuver around this thing so flawlessly. In in the midst of all this, Chris, staying calm when you're on a recovery mission that you're basically in there just looking for corpses, which they end up finding. How are you able to do this job? I mean, my hat goes off to these guys because not only that, it, all the dangers uh, of the, the ship being upside down, any materials that could be down there that could hurt them. As we mentioned, sharks, anything could be down there. And in the middle of that, unfortunately, you're coming face to face with dead bodies. 
the video that you end up seeing that is posted here is the diver Nico Van Heerden, who's being instructed, as you mentioned, by Colby. And so he is trying to push open, you know, some doors. And mind you, we had mentioned this before, but they're also dealing with issues opening doors and stuff because some of them were sealed. I think just to get into the ship alone was a, was a hassle. So yes, they're dealing with all this debris and the silt filled water that's completely cloudy. And I believe at this point they've now found four corpses from the crew members that are on the ship. And then Nico's instructed to go through an entryway by a stairwell, I believe. Why don't you tell us uh, what happens next, Bill? So Chris, uh, our diver, Nico, he is still inside the Jaskin 4. He's exploring, trying to find uh, the bodies in there. And he feels something graze against the back of his neck, so he's startled. But then it's on his video that the diver instructor, Colby, sees a set of hands. And he relays this information to Nico, the diver that's down there, and says, oh, you found another one. And Chris, it's at that point where you see a set of hands... <laughs> In this camera, right in front of this diver's face, he's assuming that this is a corpse and he's going to try to grab the body. Um, bud, those hands grabbed back. Those hands took hold of Nico's hands and grabbed him. So, <laughs> you I mean, at, at this point, I mean, the, the, the video, like I said, it's miraculous, but it is also equal parts terrifying because, like I told you when we were talking about this off air, I don't know what my reaction would be if I was Nico. If I thought I was there on strictly a recovery mission, and I'm assuming that I'm going to grab a corpse and the thing grabs me, I'm going to be startled. I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know if I'm going to hit it or if I'm going to try to harpoon it with any kind of <laughs> instrument I may have around me. But I mean, it is just so incredible how calm this diver stays the entire time. And he ends up, Grabbing hold of Harrison, because we come to find out this, these are the hands of Harrison Okene. He holds onto him calmly. Harrison then leads him back to the air pocket in which he was staying because he happened to be right there. And also you can hear Colby's voice over the thing because when Nico grabs what he thinks is that body that you mentioned that's dead and it squeezes back, you just hear Colby say, he's alive, he's alive. He be begins instructing Nico, basically saying, all right, keep him calm, give him a thumbs up, basically reassuring everything that we're here and we're going to get you out of it. But remember, they, they're not thinking that they need any type of personnel to take a living person out of the ship. They're not ready to go in there with a mask, a, uh, air, oxygen, all this stuff to grab a living person. They're just here to collect corpses, essentially. So they're like, all right, shit, now this is a whole new mission. This just went from a salvage mission to a rescue mission. And now they have to very carefully think about how they can get him not only out of the ship, but back up to the surface with a very rigorous process of decompression, everything. There's a lot of things that need to be thought about and they're thought about ahead of time. And they handle this thing flawlessly to get him back. And that's one of the things, too, because the rescue team ends up talking about it, is that they were very concerned for their own safety because they weren't sure how Harrison was going to be able to handle this. You know, he had been under there. At this point, we find out that it's 60 hours. So he's been under there for two and a half days. He's been locked in this small little air pocket for two and a half days, a total of 60 hours. So they're thinking, 
at this point, he's got to be delusional, disoriented. So they got to worry about their own safety because they're wondering now, how will he be able to handle their instructions? Will he be able to follow the divers and be led safely out of the vessel? And lo and behold, the entire rescue team says they couldn't believe just how calm Harrison was throughout the entire ordeal. And that's the one thing I picked up on on every interview I've seen with him. This guy, (laughs) and he's 29 years old, but he looks like he could be easily in his mid-40s. But Harrison is so stoic. When he speaks, he sounds like he never gets flustered. He always kind of remains calm. He has a very laid-back demeanor. You know, now in retrospect, you think about it, it's probably that demeanor that kept him alive. It is really uplifting to see the video because when they eventually find him and you just see the look on Harrison's face like like oh my god like I can't believe this I can't believe I'm being rescued he was in this air pocket for two and a half days I think they calculated that that air pocket maybe had three days of support for him to live in that air because of how quickly obviously it becomes you know saturated with co2 that he had maybe a half a day left in there before he would have died. He was on very, and I mean very, borrowed time. And the crazy thing too is we find out from Harrison's account that he sees, initially sees the diver's light swimming in the water. And so when he sees the light, he goes underwater himself to go get the diver, but the diver had so quickly moved past the room he was in, that he was unable to get to him. So he had to go back to his air pocket. Could you imagine? Oh my God, dude, I can't take this story. I am the complete opposite of what Harrison Okene is. I would be panicking, especially if I had the full sense of hope the first time fall apart. And then now all of a sudden you see a diver swimming past you and then you lose sight of him. I mean, obviously he ends up getting to Nico eventually, but what a blow. And then they also have to deal with now like you said, because of all all of Harrison's been living through at this point now, he's dehydrated, he's starving, he's been inhaling his own CO2 for two and a half days now. Is he going to be responsive to their commands on how to get him out of the ship? Is he going to panic? He has no diving experience. He's now has to dive for the first time. Before they do anything, though, they do get him water. And uh, they actually have to bring him hot water to warm him up a bit. They bring him oxygen. But now they have to teach him how to dive. (laughs) I mean, is Harrison now at this point, you know, we're talking two and a half days into this. I'm wondering if if he's thinking, is this really happening or am I imagining this? Imagine if he just completely dismissed the light in the first place and thought that it was just him like dying or something. Yeah. Like it was just a hallucination. And he's got to be running on pure adrenaline at that point. When that diver arrives, that's all he's got left in his body. Well, yeah. Like Harrison said in that interview, it was the thoughts of his family that kept him going. My guess would be that every ounce of them and his thoughts pushed him forward towards that diver. I mean, he was literally on his last legs. The video evidence is just so compelling because even after going through all this, Harrison is just simply following the directions. (laughs) Like he's been through this a thousand times. He grabs the cord there. He keeps the mask on and he follows directly behind one of the divers while being protected from behind by another diver. It's at this point that they lead him directly into the diving bell that will eventually bring him up to the surface where he then has to enter decompression chambers when i'm watching this video i thought i was gonna get choked up because i love the part when you hear 
the diver supervisor say, all right, Harrison, we got you, and now we're going to take you home. It's so incredible. Yeah, and it's almost like you can hear him like get choked up too because I'm, I'm sure that's an overwhelming feeling going from thinking that you're just about dead to someone telling you they're taking you home. What a fucking roller coaster ride. We do come to find out that Harrison does indeed make a full recovery. He's reunited with his family, uh, but unfortunately he is later told that he is the sole survivor of the crew of the Jaskin Four and 10 other bodies have been recovered, and one is still missing to this day. Unfortunately, uh, Harrison decided not to attend any of the funerals of the rest of the crew of the Jaskun 4. You know, he, he was actually kind of fearful in one instance as to why he didn't attend, because Nigerian families tend to be very superstitious. They're religious, but they're also superstitious, and I think some of them may have thought that because he was the only survivor, that maybe he used some sort of black magic or something to assure his own safety and not the others. So it, there was a little bit of an uneasiness there, and he didn't want to be in the presence of that to stoke any, any of the flames. So he does decide not to go to the, the funerals for that reason. He suffered greatly from survivor's guilt that ends up coming with the territory of being the lone survivor of any of these situations. You, you have a sense of guilt or remorse and there's a lack of understanding as to why you're the only one that survived. And that often ties in with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And we find out that Harrison suffered greatly from that. He said that he would wake up in the middle of the night screaming. And how could you blame him? I mean, I feel stressed out from just watching these videos. I cannot imagine how he must feel having lived through this. It must be on his mind constantly. I mean, it's not going to go away. You can imagine, too, him just being fearful of ever returning to the water, which he says, you know, he's like, no, I'm done with the ocean. I'm done with going back out there. He ended up getting a new job as a cook on land. And like you said, he vowed never to return to the sea again. But... but oh, <laughs> go ahead. Chris, you take it. But we come to find out that the story doesn't end here, and it, this just makes it even more remarkable of a story, is that Harrison decides that he wants to get back out there. And not only does he want to go back into the ocean again, he wants to be a diver. Obviously, I believe that you know this inspiration comes from the fact that he was saved from a diving team, and he knows how good that felt for him and that perhaps he would want to kind of give that feeling to somebody else. And so he goes to diving school and he gets his commercial diving certification. Bill, why don't you tell us who it is that actually is the one that gives him his diploma? Well, Chris, I am happy you asked. The gentleman that handed over the certification to Harrison once he completed his diving training was none other than Nico Van Heerden the diver that found him in the wreckage. And I think what we should do, Chris, is before we wrap it up, is give a huge shout out to the entire rescue crew, just so we get to mention all of them in here. The rescue crew that was responsible for saving Harrison was diver supervisor, Colby Werrett, diver number one, our man Nico Van Heerden, diver number two, Daryl Osterzen, bellman, Andre Erasmus, Superintendent Joe Putnam, LSS, Alex Gibbs, LSS, Alex Wilson, Tech Chris Watson, and how about our man, Harrison Okene, because he went and followed their 
commands perfectly, and he had a hand in this remarkable rescue as well. So, I mean, just a huge round of applause for all of these gentlemen. I think it's probably also a lesson to be learned here for divers and rescue crews. Like there is a possibility that a person could survive for this long. So to not give up hope in looking, let alone for the person who is possibly trapped in there to not give up hope, but the, the people looking, they should know. And I'm sure they've learned from this that there's possibilities that, you know, they could still be alive. Yes, uh, a true lesson indeed. And a lesson that we could carry with us into 2023. We hope that you enjoyed uh, tonight's episode and were able to gain a little bit of inspiration uh, heading into the new year. This is just truly an incredible story, and I'm really glad we got a chance to cover it. And our hearts do go out to all of uh, the victims on the Jaskin 4. But, you know... In the end, talk about finding uh, a bright spot in the darkness. That's exactly what we have here. So that's it. That is the incredible survival story of Harrison O'Kenney. So, bud, without any further ado, what do you say we give the rundown and we can get the hell out of here and see everyone next year? All right, here we go. You want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us on Instagram, uh, Between the Cracks Podcast, Facebook, Between the Cracks Podcast, well, as we always say. <laughs> Anywhere you go digging between some cracks, you will eventually find us. What was that? If you would like to become one of our lovely Patreons, please feel free to do so by clicking on the link in the show notes as well. So, Chris, with all that said, what do you say... We wish the fine, fine people out in podcast land the happiest. Oh, a new year. Mm-hmm.